so in, in college, I was a history major. Uh, my training is mainly as a historian, even my work in graduate school and as a PhD student, the majority of it had to do with history. Uh, and so I was given the tools of being a historian. Uh, one of history's most pressing questions is this one. Why did Jesus die? That's a question that people who follow Jesus ask, but it's also a question that people who don't follow Jesus, who don't consider themselves Christians or identify with Jesus ask. Because the vast majority of people believe that there was a man who lived in the first century named Jesus who was put to death by the Romans. Those facts are agreed on by 99.9% of students of history. So the question is why? Why was he put to death? Well, a lot of people say Jesus was a good teacher. He was a religious teacher. Many are willing to accept that fact. But the question is, you know, there were a lot of good religious teachers, popular religious teachers around Jesus' time. None of them were put to death by the Romans. So again, why was Jesus put to death? Well, for my money, the answer to that question, the answers to that question, is found here in the passage that Holly just read for us at the end of John chapter 11. But as we look at the answer, let me pray for us. Lord, we are coming from all different places. Some of us are convinced that you're real, that you have spoken, that you sent your son, that he died, that he rose again, that he is Lord of all. Others of us are wondering, are you there? And if you are there, are you good? And if you are there and you are good, can we know it and have a relationship with you? Lord, we're coming from lots of different places. But we have this in common. We need your word. We need your son. And so, may the words of my mouth be taken up by Jesus. And may he come in all his saving power. May the thoughts of all of our hearts receive and see Jesus for who he is. And in believing have life in his name. Amen. Well, I just um, got through a time where I had like three weeks with my brother where he came out over the holidays to stay with us. And the thing about having old family members back in town is they remind you of your childhood. You know how that works? Like things that you forgot. And one of the ways that my brother reminded me of my childhood is he put on a TV show. This might sound bizarre. Hang with me. The TV show that he put on was called The Goldbergs. The reason that he put on the Goldbergs, which is about a Jewish family, is not because we are Jewish, but because it's a Jewish family who own a furniture company. And my dad owned a furniture store. And in one episode, uh, little Adam Goldberg, who is the narrator and the, um, 
the person that my brother identified with because he's bullied by his older brother all the time named Barry. In this episode, Barry knows what he is going to do in life. He knows his purpose, and his purpose is that he is going to be an NBA all-star, which, coincidentally enough, was supposed to be my purpose. And I knew how I was going to reach this purpose. It was the same way Barry found out he was going to reach his purpose. It was this thing called Reebok pumps. Now, some of you don't remember Reebok pumps, but Reebok pumps was a shoe, and the shoe had a little rubber basketball, and you would take that basketball and you would pump it up until there was no circulation left in your foot, and then you would try to run around the basketball courts. I got a pair of Reebok pumps. I took them. I did not wear them into the gym. No, no. I took them in the box into the gym. I opened up the box. I took the, and, and I did this kind of ceremony. And then I proceeded to miss layups and brick shots. Barry also wants Reebok pumps and his dad, Murray, looks at him and he goes, you're gonna have to get a job. You're coming to the furniture store. So Barry goes to the furniture store with Murray, which, by the way, when I wanted to get my Reebok pumps, I also had to go to the furniture store and work. I think that I should get royalties for this show. When, uh, when Barry goes to the furniture store, it turns out like his dad's like causing him to, calling him to sweep and do all these other things. And then he's like, no, you can't sell. And then this guy comes in to buy a couch and he's looking at this pink couch. and He's like, we haven't sold that pink couch in 10 years. What you do is you just move them over to another section. Uh, but Barry goes over and he, turns out to be a very good salesman, and he smoozes this guy, and the next thing you know, Barry is selling all this furniture, and the furniture store is doing better than it's ever done before. Um, and his dad's like, you can't come to the furniture store anymore. And you're like, well, wait, he's, he's doing all this, this selling, and the furniture store is better, but you see, it was almost like he had too much success, and it kind of disrupted the status quo. It changed the culture of the store. I tell you that story because in here, in this passage in John 11, what happens is that Jesus is so successful, it's almost too much of a good thing. It starts to disrupt the status quo. Uh, let me remind you where we are. It's been a couple months. So we've been going through the Gospel of John, and right before this, Jesus raises his friend Lazarus from the dead. A guy in the middle of history raises another guy from the dead. And you would think at that point everybody would be ecstatic. And some were. I mean, verse 45 says that many believe. But not everybody. Verse 46, some of the people who were there and witnesses, they went to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and they told them what Jesus had done. Now, why did these people go and tell the Pharisees what Jesus had done? See, the Pharisees were the religious leaders, the religious establishment at the time. They were very popular. And the majority of them were also uneasy about Jesus and the success he was having. And these people are going to the Pharisees because they're a little unsettled because I don't know if you know this, but people don't rise from the dead every day. It's a little weird. We expect dead people to stay dead. We expect when someone dies that that is the end of it. And so if somebody ups and raised from the dead, it's kind of exciting, but it's also kind of like, I don't know about this. 
Because this is a world I don't understand. This is a world I don't know. You have just disrupted the status quo. And so, they come and they talk to the religious leaders. And they're like, what are we supposed to think about this? But they don't know what to think about it either. Look, it's not just the people who are unsettled. The religious leaders are unsettled too. Verse 47, they say, what are we to do? Or what are we doing? They're at a loss. On the one hand, verse 47, Jesus does a lot of good things. This man performs many signs. We can't deny that, and it seems to be really good. I mean, it's a good thing. He's healing people. He's raising people from the dead. The poor are being lifted up. This is all good stuff. Yet on the other hand, verse 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. If we get him go on like this and his popularity increases and this good thing keeps going, well, well the status quo is going to be disrupted a little too much. And, and the Romans, they might catch wind of it and that could cause problems. You see, the Romans... The Romans ruled the Jews at this time, and the Jews were a semi-autonomous people. They let them have their religion. They let them have their temple. They let them have their political leaders. As long as the Jews were willing to not disrupt the peace of Rome, as long as the Jews were willing to not mess with the status quo of Roman society and Roman order, but you see, this would do that. And, and if you, the Jews, were to disrupt the, the, the status quo of Roman society and Roman order, you know what would happen? Well, then things got scary. It was crucifixions. Not just one or two crucifixions. Crucifixions galore. Crucifixions from, from dawn until dusk. Crucifixion on every highway and every byway leading in and out of Rome. In fact, one time, Rome crucified over... A thousand Jews, I think it was something like 6,000 Jews, in one day. And so you see the problem. He's doing good things, but it's a little too much of a good thing. And, and he's kind of disrupting the status quo. And, and if that happens, then, then what's going to happen is, is that Jesus is going uh, to come. He's going to get popular. The Romans are going to get wind of it. And then they're going to take away our place, probably meaning the temple, which this council ruled, and our nation. It will not be good for us, and it will not be good for the people. And that's the thing about Jesus. Jesus is always disrupting the status quo. You let Jesus into your life and it's going to disrupt the status quo. You want Jesus to come in and you say, Jesus, I would like a better marriage. Well, you know what? That could ruffle things up. He could start uncovering patterns of relationship that are not so healthy. Or you say, Jesus... Uh, I want a career, but you start letting Jesus into your vocational life, and that could, that could complicate things. Maybe your relationship with your parents, or your relationship with your spouse. You, you say, Jesus, um, I don't know what to do about my financial situation, but you let Jesus in, and you let him start actually like 
healing your relationship to money and it could start changing things. The status quo could start, you know, getting a little overturned and and you don't know what that's going to look like and that's kind of scary. When we moved into our home, the, the property had not been kept up very well for months. And so after we moved in, we had a gardener come in and they kind of cleaned things up. And I walked out of the back door and we had this kind of row of shrubs that were there. And they were down to like half an inch. They had completely cut them down and I was very unsettled. Because I looked at these shrubs and they'd just been hacked down completely. And the, the problem is that the shrubs had kind of like overgrown and there were dead parts and other things. And so these gardeners came and they just hacked them all the way down without talking to me about it. And I looked at it and I was like, well, what's going to happen? Now am I going to have just like a stump for like years? Am I going to have to look at a stump? I mean, I was very unsettled. But you see, what they were doing is they were cutting back all the dead parts so that the plants could now grow and flourish, which they have done. That's what Jesus does. He comes into our lives, and he comes to heal us, but in order to heal us, he's got to cut things down. Some of you are experiencing that right now. You don't know what's going on in your life, but you're like, I feel distressed, topsy-turvy, I can't make Uh, up from down and down from up. And Jesus, what are you doing right now? What he is doing is he's probably healing you. But to heal you, he's got to cut some brush back. This always happens with Jesus. He, he, He unsettles our sense of control and all our shaky sources of comfort to give us his true and lasting peace. And the leaders are confronted with this. And they're like, what should we do? On the one hand, he's doing good things. On the other hand, the Romans could come and they could take away our place and our nation. But you see, it isn't a question. They know what to do. At least that's Caiaphas' answer. Verse 49, one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Like, what are you talking about? This isn't a question, Caiaphas is saying. Nor do you understand, verse 50, that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Do you hear what Caiaphas is saying? He's like, if it's between this one man going on or us having the status quo where we have relative autonomy and we have a temple and we have our place of leadership, it's better, don't you realize, it's better for the nation to sacrifice this one man than for the nation to perish. It's not a question. And so, verse 53, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Why did Jesus die? Jesus died because he disturbed the status quo. Jesus died because when Jesus comes to save, he also disrupts our sense of control. And you know, it's really easy. It's really easy to to look at the Jewish leaders and think, ah, that's what they do, but I wouldn't do something like that. I thought that was pretty easy to tell. Some of you may know this. Um, I suffer from chronic back pain. I have for the last 
10 years. And I calculated it up sometime. And over the last 10 years, about 50% of the time, uh, I'm in like, I'm in a pain that like is not as distracting, like the level of distracting. So it's there and I know it's there. And, um, and my wife, Pam, uh, very wisely, kindly suggested to me, she's like, have you thought about, have you thought about James 5? James 5 says, if anyone's sick, let him call the elders and there to anoint them and pray for healing. And you know what I thought of as soon as she said that? It was a great idea. It was a great suggestion. You know what I thought of as soon as she said that? James 5 also says, and let the person confess their sin. And then I thought, well, wait, if I go to be anointed, then I'm also going to have to confess my sin. And if I have to confess my sin, then people are going to know about my pride, and people are going to know about my battles with lust, and people are going to know about my bitterness, and people are going to know about all the, all, the, uh, all the ways in which I, like, judge people and things like that. And it, so if I come and do that, then, then I'm going to have to be vocal about those things, and then people might have a different perception of me, and then the whole status quo is going to be messed up. So I don't know, maybe I'd rather not have Jesus come that close into my life. Now stop looking at me, because you do the same thing. See, what are all the ways in which we try to maybe not come up with elaborate plots to kill Jesus, but come up with elaborate plots to avoid Jesus so that he doesn't touch certain areas of our lives. Maybe it's praying about other things. Maybe it's staying busy with service. Maybe it's always counseling others so that you don't have to have others speak into your life. See, why did Jesus die? He died because he disrupts the status quo, and like it or not, we like to maintain the status quo. But there's another reason. And it's found in Caiaphas' words. See, verse 51 tells us that when Caiaphas spoke, he did not speak on his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. A prophet is someone who speaks not on their own accord, a true prophet, not on their own accord, but on God's accord. In other words, what John is bringing to our attention is that there's not just a historical and political reason for Jesus' death, but there's also a theological answer to that question. There's not just a human reason for Jesus' death, but there's also a divine one. That Jesus died because it was part of God's sovereign plan. Look again at verse 51. It said that Caiaphas was prophesying. And what does a prophet do but speak God's words? He's not speaking on his own accords. Well, whose is he speaking in accord with? In accord with God. He's telling what God would do. What God is going to do. So do you see this juxtaposition? In verse 53, they make their plans to put him to death. But it's not their plans that are the only plans that are at play. There are also God's plans that are at play, verse 51. You see, they plan for Jesus to die to save the nation by securing the status quo. But God plans for Jesus to die to save the nation and disrupt the status quo. 
And that is good news. It's good news because here's what it means. It means that all our attempts to avoid God's saving purposes in our lives cannot thwart God's saving purposes in our lives. It means as elaborate as our schemes are to self-justify and to, not, to deny and to devoid change, guess what? God's scheme to change us and conform us to the likeness of his son, they're more elaborate still. They started before the foundation of the world and they will come to completion. And that is good news. Because it means that, guess what? You can't outsmart God and you can't outsin God. He will have his way in your life and that way is to save you, Christian. I was recently, one of my favorite things to do as a pastor uh, is to meet with our children who are born into the church, grow up into the church, and I get to hear how God has worked in their lives as they express their faith. And I was meeting with one of our children recently, last week, and, and I was just asking this child, all our children who, um, who profess faith and come to the Lord's table, what happens is that they are, they're instructed in our beliefs and our values. And I was just going over that with uh, this child and asking, like, hey, what was encouraging to you? Or what did you learn? Or what stuck out to you? And, um, and the child said to me, you know, I was struck again how God is in control of everything. And he cares for every part of our life. And that salvation is a gift. And even our faith is a gift. And that, I just found that really comforting, she said. And rightly so. And rightly so. Because, because our plans are not ultimate. God's plans are ultimate. And why is it part of God's plan for Jesus to die? Well, if you look at Caiaphas' answer, we find that his answer is both sacrificial and substitutionary. It's sacrificial. In, in verses 50 and 51, uh, Caiaphas says, we read, that Jesus dies, but, quote, for the people, verse 50, and, quote, for the nation, verse 51. Now, this way of framing things, for the people and for the nation, is used over and over in sacrificial context, which makes sense. Caiaphas is a high priest. He's well-versed in the realm of sacrifice. And Caiaphas, of course, probably meant this, that, that Jesus was a scapegoat, a political scapegoat on, the half, on behalf of the nation. But you see, his words were in accordance with God's plan. And God's plan was that he would be not just a sacrifice, but a substitutionary sacrifice. Verse 50, don't you understand, Caiaphas says, that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. In other words, what, what Caiaphas is saying is, is, is Jesus is dying in the place of or instead of others. 
And it's better for him to die. And if he dies at the hands of the Romans, then we will not have to die at the hands of the Romans. Then the people will not have to die at the hands of the Romans. He will be a sacrifice, and that sacrifice will be a substitute for the nation. Now, there's a tragic irony in this statement. It didn't work. In 70 AD, the Romans came. They sacked Jerusalem. They overturned the temple. This ruling body was dissolved. And Jews were slaughtered. So Caiaphas, in one way, was wrong. They put Jesus to death and the nation still died. But wait a second. John didn't say that Caiaphas was a false prophet. He says that Caiaphas is a true prophet. That he speaks not on his own accord, but on in accordance with God's words. And so if Caiaphas is a true prophet, then these words must be true in some way. And that's where these words are not just a tragic irony, but they're a beautiful irony. See, why did Jesus die? Because it was God's plan for Jesus to be a sacrificial substitute for people's sins. And that it was better for one man to die unjustly than for his people to die justly for their sin. In other words, what John is bringing out is this, that, that Jesus, he died not, not because the people had violated the status quo of Roman peace, the Pax Romana, and the Shalom of Rome and the Empire. No, the people deserve to die because they violated and they committed treason against the High King, not Caesar, the High King. And they violated the Shalom that God created and established in Genesis 1 and 2. And for that, they deserve death. But it was better that God become a man and die unjustly, God determined, than that his people die justly for their sin. You see, Caiaphas' motive in making a plan to put Jesus to death was selfish and sinful. But God's motive in his plan to put Jesus to death was love. Man, that's a good... That's a good, that's good news. Because let's be honest, how many of us, when we come to Jesus, come with pure motives? I mean, most of the time when we come to Jesus, we want deliverance from hell. We want things that he'll give us. We want freedom from addiction. We, we want our life to get sorted out. Maybe we want a spouse. So that's what brought us into the church and that's what brought us to hear the gospel. But, but is it that we believe that we were created to worship and serve the creator above all else? No, most of us not. That's not why we, most of us become Christians. That's not our motive. No. But you know what? That doesn't matter. See, our motives mixed as they may be, tainted as they may be, they do not undermine and they cannot taint God's motive of love. 
to rescue you and me and reconcile us with himself that we might live forever in fellowship and in worship with him. This is good news. So why did Jesus die? John has given us a theological answer that is high. It's because God planned it from before the foundation of the world and his will is greater than our will and his will envelops our wills. And John gives us an answer that is deep because God's love goes so deep that it rescues us from the deepest fall that we could ever have. See, however far you fall or have fallen from a relationship with God, however much you have stumbled, however deeply you have sinned, His love is deeper still. But John also gives us a theological answer that is broad. Look verse 52. And not for the nation only, but to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So let me give you a little history lesson. The term Jew comes from the word Judean. To be a Jew is to be a Judean. That's what it meant in the first century world. Judeans were scattered about because some of them had been exiled. But most of the Judeans who were there living in the first century would not have thought about their fellow countrymen that were scattered about. They would have thought about those who were living in Judea at the time. And by the way, I haven't even mentioned the Israelites. You see, Long, long time ago, before this happened, Israel, uh, the people of God, the nation of Israel, had a civil war, and it was divided in between the northern kingdom Israel and the southern kingdom Judea. And so what is called the lost tribes of Israel or whatever, they were kind of scattered about, and they were exiled before the southern tribes. And so a Judean was definitely not these northern tribes. But they were not included. John is writing an evangelistic gospel, an evangelistic account of Jesus' life in order to bring Jews, Judeans, to saving knowledge of Jesus. But you know who they would have thought of first when they heard the word Jew? They would have thought just like we do. Those closest in proximity with them. Because that's how we are as people. We think of our family and our friends and our country and our nation and, and those people in, who are our socioeconomic de demographic, our denomination, our tradition. But do you see what John is doing here? He's saying, oh, no, 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 no. Your vision is too small. God did not send Jesus to die just to save the people that you know and love. God sent Jesus to die to save those people that you aren't even on your mind and aren't even on your radar. The Judeans who are spread out throughout the Mediterranean world. And would they have even imagined those people? Would they have been in their picture? No. But John is reminding us that God so loved the world. And, and here's, here's the thing about it. Let me bring a point to it. When he says, gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad, at that point, do you know what they would have thought? They would have thought those Judeans who were scattered abroad. Because he reminded them of them, even though they weren't thinking about them. He would have thought about those children of Abraham 
from Abraham's lineage who had been scattered abroad. But you know what they probably wouldn't have been thinking of? You know what I guarantee they wouldn't have been thinking of? They wouldn't have been thinking of those of us in this room who are Gentiles. But John is saying that Jesus was sent for you and for me as well. Do you see what is happening here? John is saying you cannot draw a boundary around God's saving purposes. God sent his son to die to reconcile and to unite to himself and to one another. People who you never imagined would be reconciled and together forever. I was talking with someone recently, and I, I, I mentioned, I said, hey, we have a mutual friend. I've gotten to know this friend at pastor's conferences. And the person looked at me and said, wait, that person's a pastor? Ben's a pastor? I said, yeah, Ben's a pastor. He said, Ben's the one who like, used to do drugs with me and sold me drugs. Ben can't be a pastor. I was like, no, Ben's a pastor. Like, he's like, no, I can't, no, I don't believe it. I'm like, yes, he's a pastor. He's devoted his life to Jesus because Jesus came and saved him. Never, ever, ever draw a line that you say, not that person. Couldn't save that person. They couldn't be a Christian. They couldn't be used in God's purposes. Because you see, God's purposes in Jesus Christ and in his death, they are high and they are deep, but they are also wide. They expand every boundary that you could believe. So stay hopeful and pray that the Lamb might have the rewards of his sufferings. Wynton Marsalis is a famous trumpet player, and there is a story that's told about him playing a gig in New York City. He was playing one of his ma most um, kind of iconic songs, I Don't Stand a Ghost of a Chance with You, and he was playing it unaccompanied, just him and the trumpet. A and he was just putting his whole self into the song, and he got to the end of the song where he was just holding each note as he closed the song out. And at the most dramatic point, someone's cell phone went off. At that point, everyone started kind of giggling. Then they started picking up their glasses and chatting. And it's like this, this, this moment was ruined. But when Marsalis, he, he sat there for a second, he paused, and then he did something kind of uncanny. He got on his trumpet and he started playing the cell phone ring. And then he Im Im uh, improvised off of that for five minutes as people kind of stood in rapture. And then he brought it back around at the end to those last notes and held them out. I think about that story because the person who was calling, I don't know what their motives were, but I'm pretty sure that they wanted to get in touch with that person and they didn't have any idea that they were at a Winston Marsalis, uh, Winston Marsalis jazz concert. And so 
that person had their motives. They had their plan. They were calling. This other person had forgot to put the cell phone on, and you'd think that the whole thing was disrupted. But actually, Marsalis' skill is so great that he took the disruption and he enveloped it into his concert and he just made it better. That's what God does for you and for me. Take comfort in that. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.